at Paul's disposition. We ask the question, what is it that made the Apostle Paul tick? What energized him? What gave him his motivation as he lived the Christian life? And we said that the answer is Paul's communion with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means the closeness of Paul's walk with his Savior. That he was a man who knew Jesus, who not only knew about Jesus, but knew him so personally, so relationally, in such deep fellowship. And yet, though he knew him so well, still says, as we see here in verse 10, that I may know him. I want to know him more. And we also saw last week that Paul is given to us as an example. Here, as elsewhere, Paul says to these readers of his, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Don't imitate me because I'm Paul, because of who I am. Imitate me insofar as I seek to follow the example of Christ. And the New Testaments that we have open in front of us are, is a book that is dominated by the life and the letters and indeed the sufferings of the Apostle Paul. We can even say this, the Apostle Paul is given to the church as the supreme example of a mature Christian believer. And that is why the church of God always needs mature, devoted, Christ-like believers. We should do two things, you know. We should pray that the Lord might enrich this church by adding to our number more and more mature Christian people. But more than that, we should all want to become such mature Christian people. Men and women and indeed young people who are examples to those in the church of Jesus Christ with us. So tonight I want to continue where we left off last Sunday evening and to continue to look at Paul's communion with Jesus Christ, but particularly in the area of the suffering and death of Christ, and then the resurrection of Christ. We're in verses 10 and 11 of Philippians 3 this evening. So just two points tonight. First of all, what we see here in Paul's life is conformity to the death of Jesus Christ. Look at Paul's words in verse 10. He says at the end of verse 10, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And I want to think about those words in particular for a little while. What does Paul mean by becoming like Jesus in his death? Is Paul thinking only about the hour of his own forthcoming death, whenever that may be? Is Paul saying, when I come to my last few hours of life on this earth, 
I want to die the way Jesus died. I want to entrust my soul silently to the Father and maybe like Jesus did, pray, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Is Paul saying, I simply want at the very end of my life to end that life the way Jesus did. Well, it's true that Paul may well include that. And when we look at the last few chapters of the book of Acts, really from about chapter 21 to 28, Paul doesn't even end his life in those verses. And yet we see in those eight chapters so many striking similarities between Paul and Jesus himself in the way that Paul suffered. His encounters with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the plots against his life and his various trials before Jewish and Roman authorities. And you see that Paul indeed suffers in a very similar way to Jesus. But Paul means something bigger than just the hour of his death. Verse 10, the end of verse 10, can be translated like this. Being conformed to his death, or being shaped, being fashioned, being molded into the form and pattern of Christ's death. Paul, what is your ambition? Paul will tell us that I should be molded and shaped and conformed into the pattern of the death of Christ. Now, we need to pause and take that in. Because here is one of the most radical, shocking, countercultural things that we find in the Bible. The Christian ambition of the Apostle Paul. It goes against everything that our society shouts at us. Enjoy life. Seize the day. Carpe diem. Have fun. Fulfill your dreams. Do everything on your bucket list. Go for it. Life's there for the taking. The world is your oyster. Come on. Especially young people. Take everything you possibly can. And we read this and we see something that is so opposite, don't we? Paul's ambition has nothing to do with the enjoyments of this life or the acclaim and the applause of this world. Paul's ambitions have nothing to do with rich experiences and taking great opportunities. No, says Paul, my ambition is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, we'll come to that, and may share Christ's sufferings becoming like him in his death. And it's been like that for Paul ever since the day he was called by Jesus himself. Maybe you remember that in the very early days of Saul of Tarsus being brought to Christ and being blinded by the light of the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, that Ananias, who was sent to uh, go to Saul, uh, was told by the Lord, I will show him, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
And Paul's life from that moment on became a litany of suffering. As we know from the rest of Acts and his letters. Especially the second letter to the Corinthians. Do you remember how two weeks ago our brother Paul Williams from Swindon was with us? And he reminded us about Paul's sufferings. The beatings. The imprisonments. The shipwrecks. The opposition, the stonings, and of course that thorn in the flesh, which we were told was like a great, a great stake in the flesh, a great ripping, tearing, large, agonizing pain in his body, in his mind, whatever it was, a messenger of Satan that so tormented Paul. Paul knew about all these things. Now let's just pause for a minute and let's make one or two things quite clear. We do not mean, in case we are misunderstood, in case I'm misunderstood, I do not mean that a Christian should go out of his way or her way to look for suffering or to make ourselves suffer or to pretend that we want to suffer or enjoy suffering. That would be perverse. That would be wrong. And neither do we mean that a Christian should shun every opportunity that may come towards us in this life. As we thought this morning, this earth is still God's earth. The work we do, the recreation we enjoy are good and important. We should serve God in our generation we must remain in this world serving the Lord as long as we can. We should seek the peace of this city that we are in. I don't just mean the city of London, but whichever city or town or place we belong to, even while we are in exile here. We are exiles here, but we seek the peace of the city. And we can serve God in any number of spheres legitimately. We can serve the Lord in business, in education, in health, in politics, in the arts, in media, in science, engineering, technology, computing, the environment, in the home, and in the church of God. The Bible does not give us any encouragement at all to become monastic recluses or certainly that we should try to impose suffering on ourselves. So what then should be our view of suffering? The New Testament tells us that there will be quite enough suffering for a Christian in this life without him or her going to look for it if he or she lives faithfully. Once somebody is identifiably a Christian, a child of God, in this world of unbelief and opposition, with the devil himself as our opponent, suffering will become inevitable. And we are called to it. It's part and parcel of our communion with Jesus Christ. You know, I say these things not because I have pleasure in saying them. I don't, actually. I find this quite hard to say. But I say these things because they are there in the Bible. 
And they are part of what the Lord Jesus himself said, didn't he? If anybody would come after me, then let him take up his cross and follow me, and then he will become my disciple. Dear disciples, he says, the night he's about to be betrayed, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He warned his beloved disciples again and again and again that the cost for following Jesus is going to be that we will suffer. There's no way around it. We have the Apostle Paul going through those cities of Asia Minor. You remember Lystra and Derbe and others and receiving all that treatment of stoning and opposition from these people and then saying as he goes back to them, through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. And then, of course, we have Paul at the very end of his life writing to Timothy and saying, yes, all who desire to live a godly life will experience persecution and, indeed, other forms of suffering as well as persecution. Now, do you know, I could wish, and you could all wish, that there could be no suffering. Oh, we could pray, Lord, remove all suffering at one stroke. Just take it away. Just, just end it. Just give me a nice life, Lord. I don't want to suffer. I, I'd rather have a, a suffering-free, a pain-free, a persecution-free, a trouble-free life. I, I don't want suffering. No one wants suffering. If you're healthy, you don't want to suffer, but we, but we do suffer, don't we? We suffer because we're Christians. Why? Why? The apostle, the same apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 verse 24, and he says this, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I'll read that verse again. It's a striking verse. It's a puzzling verse. It's a, it's a falling off your chair type verse. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Colossians 1 verse 24. It's a few pages over from Philippians. Now, what does Paul mean by that? There's something lacking in Christ's sufferings. Help! Oh dear, has Christ not suffered enough? Not enough to save me. Do I need to add my own sufferings to Christ's crucifixion that I should be saved? Is that what Paul is saying? No, he's not saying that. But he is saying this. The sufferings of Jesus Christ overflow into the lives of his people. Such is the depth and strength of that union and communion between the Lord and his body. We are called his body. That's for a reason. We suffer in union with Christ. And Paul is saying here something else too. That this suffering that he endures, 
that Paul endures is in some sense for the sake of Christ's body, that is, the church. Now, what does that mean? We're into very deep Christian, not just theology, but Christian psychology and experience here, aren't we? There was with Paul, and there has been with many a believer, what we might call a ministry purpose to his suffering. We might say that the more Paul suffered, the more he resembled the crucified Jesus. Indeed, he tells the Corinthians in his second letter that he and his companions are always bearing in the body the death of Christ. We exhibit Christ crucified to the world, he is saying. And in his very suffering, Jesus ministers effectively through the Apostle Paul. Paul's not unique in that. You've heard of the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, who uh, ministered not far from here in a German-speaking church in Sydenham in the 1930s, then went back to Germany and then to the States briefly, but then back to Germany during the Second World War and suffered martyrdom at the hands of the Nazis just one month before the collapse of the Third Reich. And Bonhoeffer wrote in his most famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, these well-known words. Listen to these words. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins... The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And then Bonhoeffer's perhaps most frequently quoted words. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So, my friends, my brothers and sisters here tonight, my beloved family in Jesus Christ, what do we do when suffering in any shape or form comes to us? Do we panic? Are we angry? Are we surprised? Do we say, God is letting me down? Do we say, God's deserted me. There's obviously, or maybe God isn't there at all. There is no God. There's no loving God anyway. Is that what we do? Not if we know our Bibles. Not if we know our Christian history. Not indeed if we know a good few choice Christian friends and brothers and sisters. We don't say that at all. No, the Apostle Peter says, brothers, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that is happening to you. He's talking, it seems, about the burnings, the fiery burnings in Rome in the reign of Nero, maybe that, and as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, he says. The glory of God and of Christ is in you when you suffer in this way. 
This suffering is to draw you and me to closer fellowship with Jesus Christ. We are more effective Christians. We are more soul-winning Christians. We are more fruitful Christians. The more Christ-like we are in every way. And that means even in suffering as Christ suffered. And I would add especially in suffering as Christ suffered. You read the great missionary biographies, the David Brainerds and the Henry Martins and the William Careys and the Hudson Taylors and the Adoniram Judsons and these great men and the women who went with them too. And you read about suffering and what do you read with the suffering? You see people whose lives are becoming more and more like the life of Jesus. You know, one of the greatest joys of being a pastor is spending time with seasoned believers, saints who are well on in their years. Not only to open the Bible and to read and to pray with them, which is so precious, but in doing so, to enter into something of the experiences of these believers. Why? Because very often these are the saints who have known something more of this suffering, have known a closer walk with the crucified Jesus as a result. And when we spend time with them, we learn what it is to be conformed to the death of Christ in our own lives. We are enabled to do the same. There it is then, conformity to the sufferings and to the death of Jesus Christ. But I want briefly to go on to a second point and a final point. In the same verse that we have been in, or rather the same two verses, Philippians 3, 10 and 11, my second point is the contemplation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, do you notice how in these two verses, verses 10 and 11, take them together, The resurrection is before and after, and the suffering is in the middle. It's like a sandwich. The resurrection is the bread. The suffering is the filling. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, becoming and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now this is so pastorally significant. Suffering is not the last word, and suffering is not the first word. Yes, Paul's disposition is conditioned by his fellowship in Christ's suffering. But that suffering is never alone. It is hemmed in before and behind and above and below and surrounded on all sides by the reality, by the promise of resurrection. Christ's resurrection and in consequence our resurrection, Paul's resurrection, the believer's resurrection. And we must have the same mind. What will you and I do 
if it's only all about suffering. We have a life and an existence that is more to be pitied than all people. But Christians, we are surrounded on all sides by a glow of resurrection. A Christian is not defined by his or her suffering. If it were not for Christ's resurrection and ours, then our whole life would be a perplexing, cruel, tragic, and meaningless waste. But because Christ is risen, then we who are one with Christ will also rise and are already seated with him in the heavenly places, our names written in heaven, our titles are inscribed, our inheritance is sure, and that changes everything. This is the same letter to the Philippians in which Paul has written that amazing early Christian hymn that we find in the previous chapter in chapter 2. And that is the template for Christ's life and the life of all who are in Christ. What do I mean? First, the suffering. First, the humiliation. First, the pain. First, the lowliness and the coming down. Made himself obedient, he who was in the very form of God. Became obedient to death, the death of the cross. But therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. The Son of God became a man and entered into the lowest depths with us and for us to take us to the highest pinnacle. And if it had not been for Jesus doing that, we would only ever be down there and have no opportunity, no means of ever going up there instead, of ascending to that place where we receive the crown through Jesus Christ alone. Understand this. If... We suffer with him. We will be glorified with him. Let me put it to you like this. Are you suffering as a Christian? Are you suffering because you're a child of God? Only you can answer that question. Only you can give a full answer to that question, a detailed answer to that question. Is your suffering as a Christian real suffering because you're a believer? You know that it is. You know that because you have given a faithful testimony to Jesus Christ, you have suffered in various ways. And that suffering is, in a sense, it is, it is the Lord Jesus Christ being true to his word. He said to his disciples, we've already seen this, but if anyone comes after me, he must take up his cross. And he says in, in Mark's gospel, whoever follows me will receive in this life so many things including persecutions. It's part of the deal. It's part of the package. If you come with Christ, you, you, you come and you taste a cross. You experience suffering. But, but, how can our faithful God and Savior who gives us suffering in Christ fail to then give us also glory and life and resurrection and hope and praise and joy 
And we need to know that, brothers and sisters. We need to sense that. Our hearts need to rejoice in the reality of that. We need more resurrection joy in our hearts. We can, we can be strangers to this, can't we? Can't I? Can't you? Our citizenship is in heaven and not on earth. But we're on earth now. And we're in exile now. And this earth is a place of weeping. It's a place of sorrow. Weeping endures for the night. But joy comes in the morning. You know, I think that the materialism of the 20th and 21st centuries have played their part in shaping a generation of Western Christians in particular who are almost looking for heaven on earth and are tied to this world and are expecting everything in this life. And we're not going to find it in this life. No, an earlier generation of believers perhaps knew more keenly than many of us what it was to know suffering and loss. You you read their diaries, you, you sing their hymns, you read their biographies, and you find out what I mean. But we also see this, don't we? Look at this Apostle Paul. We look at a snapshot of his life anywhere at all in Acts or Philippians or anywhere else to Timothy and we say, how could he have suffered that? How could he have gone back to those cities and towns when he was almost stoned to death there a few weeks earlier? How could he give himself up to being a prisoner of Caesar and going through all these terrible experiences? What gave Paul the almost inhuman courage to face these things? How could this man be so so supernaturally bold in the face of such certain suffering, what was it about him? And here's the answer, my friends. He knew Jesus Christ so well. He knew the Christ who had taken hold of him with such love and such power and such pity and such salvation. I know him and I want to know him. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. And therefore, yes, there is suffering. But before I think about the suffering, I know the power of his resurrection. And I will, through suffering and after suffering, I will attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's what we need. Brothers and sisters, that's the mind and the disposition that we need. So that we can run in the direction that the Apostle Paul ran in. And arrive at the destination that the Apostle Paul arrived at. To be with Christ forever. Which is better. Better by far. Isn't it? Follow him. Come follow me says Jesus. I will give you rest. I've taken your sins on me already. 
I've bled and died for you. You're my child. Come, follow me. Don't be alarmed. I've run the race before you. Even though there are dark valleys and shadows of death that may lie ahead of you, I've made that way level for you. I've made a way where you can plant your feet safely, where your knees can be strong and your head can be held high and you're not going to faint and fall. You might say tonight, I'm, I'm frightened, I'm scared. What's it going to mean, all this suffering? Am I up to it? No, I, I, I'm not up to it. You're not up to it, but he's up to it. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. I will carry you. I will carry you. The Footprints poem, which is based on Scripture, Deuteronomy, the children of Israel in the wilderness, carried by a father all the way through until they got to that land of promise. That's the same for you and for me. He carries us. Underneath us are the everlasting arms. We have nothing to fear. We have far more to fear without Christ than we do in Christ's arms, don't we? Oh, come to him again. Commit yourself to him. Follow him, love him, walk with him. He will never, never leave nor forsake nor desert any of his beloved people. Let's pray together.